Welcome to On Reading, coming to you from the break room of the Dairy Civic Center, a place to catch up with your favorite hosts and guests about what's keeping them on reading. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And joining us via Zoom, he is an associate professor in English and the Humanities at Milligan University. He has written extensively on Stephen King's work, including the book we recently read, Stephen King and American Politics, as well as co-authoring Stephen King and American History. Please welcome to the show, Michael Blue. And Michael, how are you? I'm doing great. Well, thank you so much for that warm welcome. I'm really happy to be here. I am really excited to have you on after diving into this book. There's so many fun things to talk about. I I can't wait to dive into all things Stephen King with you. That sounds great. I am I'm eager to ch- chat about anything Stephen King related here. Perfect. Well, as is tradition, I'm going to pass things over to CM as she guards the rest of the interview with everything she has. So I hope you're ready to impress. CM, you ready? Yeah. I have to I have to tie my threat into politics now. And I'm just thinking <laughs> Okay, so Michael, if you get these questions wrong or don't answer them to our satisfaction. Mm. I'm not going to vote in our next major election. Oh, Jesus. All right. Wow. Pressure's on. <laughs> oh, wow. We were throwing down the gauntlet. All right. <laughs> oh, man. I hated this saying got serious. that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I always vote. Anyway. <laughs> so to kick things off, what was your introduction to Stephen King? Well, my introduction to Stephen King, I mean, I think the first Stephen King book I ever read was It. And I think I read it way too young. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I, I got it like a you know library basement book sale or something and I said what is this like the cover was just so disturbing and I guess that says a lot about me that you know I'm this little kid and I'm like this looks like a I want to see what this clown has to say <laughs> and, um, and then in that way too impressionable young age read it loved it you know I, that was by far the biggest book at that point you know mm-hmm. 800 pages for a kid that age, it really like engrossed me. And so he had me hooked early on, but then I went to college and, you know, some time passed between reading that book. And then I went to college and in college, there was a professor at the university of Vermont, Tony Magistrali, who is the leading scholar uh, in Stephen King studies. I mean, he's done a ton of interviews with Stephen King. I would say he's the first person to really make Stephen King a legitimate academic line of study. Mm-hmm. Uh, to that point, I think even Stephen King has acknowledged you you made what I was doing seem academically interesting when, <laughs> you know, until that point I seemed just kind of popular. And now it's grown to quite a big field of people who take Stephen King as their primary focus. Mm-hmm. So I took some classes with Tony and he's such a great professor. He made the material so interesting. I mean, who wouldn't want to take a college seminar called like Stephen King. I mean, oh, yeah, <laughs> no brainer, right? I was like, of course, it's that or Victorian literature. And I've got to <laughs> go with the Stephen King for, for the win. So uh, but those the class was just so interesting. So I took a number of classes with him on that and just the horror genre generally. And then I was very fortunate to come back and he and I kept in touch. And then we wrote Stephen King and American history together. So it's not every day you get to come back and and write a book with your former professor uh, about Stephen King. I mean, that's really living the dream. Yeah, uh, that is really cool. 
<laughs> so yeah, I, I, I've always been like lifelong fan of Stephen King from from the early days. So yeah, that uh, that's that's the history of me and Stephen <laughs> King in a nutshell. I I assume you reread it at some point. Many times. <laughs> what was your impression from when you read it as a very young child to the the next time you read it when you probably I assume caught more things and or maybe read it more critically? You know, I think I, I've taught Stephen King's it a number of times as well. When I have to design a syllabus that includes Stephen King, it's a steady rotation of The Shining, Misery, and It. Um, as kind of the texts I think are good introductory Stephen King books. And just because each time I read it, I feel like something subtle and interesting reveals itself mm-hmm. in the book, which I mean, the way in which he kind of weaves together the two timelines, but also the ways that he's weaving together these really interesting observations about living in community and being an individual and how sometimes you want to fit in and sometimes you really don't want to fit in and how communities can be like the best thing in our lives. And sometimes communities can be suffocating. (laughs) I feel like he really captures not only small town living, and I grew up in a small town in New England, so I sort of understood where those young people were coming from, like their experience really echoed my own. But I just feel like each time I read it, there was something a little more interesting about it. It just revealed itself to me. And that's happened each time. And I've read it, you know, dozens of times, probably at this when when I was writing about it, I read it, you know, many Mm. times. It's such a rich book. So I always recommend it to people. I know some people don't love it. And I always shake my head at them in disgust and then <laughs> chastise them. But some people don't, really don't think it's very good, but I, I think it, uh, you know, it's fantastic. I mean, I absolutely love it. Okay. I'm really excited to ask you the next question then. What is your ultimate Stephen King moment? Oh, well, you know, that probably changes based on whenever you're taught, like what Stephen King book I'm engrossed in at that moment. (laughs) Like there are some duds. There's no question. There are some Stephen King books that I am not that uh, in love with, but for the most part, when I'm reading one, my favorite moment is from the one I am currently reading. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always love uh, the shining with uh, the wasp's nest and the various things he does with the wasp's nest. I think that was the moment where I realized, I think the Stephen King guy uh, has some interesting ideas. I mean, I think that's when I was was thinking, you know, the way in which he plays with that symbol throughout the book, and he does these different things with uh, the wasp nest, just gave me an impression like The Shining is a lot more than just another one of those popular mass market paperbacks. There's something going on in this book that is really important and interesting and, and it's got a lot more to say. So I love The Wasp Nest and The Shining. I actually really like the ending of It, which is a very, that's a hot take. I think that's a kind of, like, that's the opinion I have that I think most people would say, what are you talking about? The ending of It is one of his worst endings. I disagree. I think it's one of his best endings, actually. But, so I love the ending of It. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I'm really, you know what a book I'm really into of Stephen King's right now? It's uh, Duma Key. And a dud in most eyes, most people really don't like that book. There's actually, I think, some really interesting stuff going on. So there's some moments in Duma Key that really are resonating with me right now, maybe because I'm rereading it and and kind of thinking about it and writing about it. But um, there's some powerful moments in Duma Key where the um, Nan Melda, the, the uh, servant, gets harpooned and 
she ends up getting harpooned as she's trying to save the uh, white man's kids, but he misinterprets her actions. It's, it's sort of a ironic and tragic moment. And it just really, once you start like pulling back the layers, start to realize interesting commentary about race in America. So that book has some moments that I think for anyone who has not, or who's thought it was a minor Stephen King book, don't think it's a minor Stephen King book. I actually think that's one that's worth a reread Mm. uh, for anyone who sort of passed it by. Very interesting. I, I think he passed. Yeah, I think those are excellent answers. You're going to vote the next election. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so let's dive into uh, why we're talking to you today. You are a writer. You wrote this incredible book that we read. Tell me what started your love of writing. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Well, you know, I think my love of writing definitely precedes my love of academic writing. When I was young and even into college, I thought maybe about fiction writing, playwriting. I I was big into playwriting when I was in high school and then uh, into college a little bit as well. I always loved writing as a young person. I mean, I remember that I had these notebooks, these stacks of notebooks that I would just fill with stories and ideas. And I I made it a, a point. I was such a kind of nerdy kid. I made it a point of writing every day, like at least a page a day, even if it was just nonsense, like always writing. That's awesome. And so I was a very disciplined young person, I think. I don't know if I could hold to that in my elder years. (laughs) But but then, I mean, it was just, I love to write. And I, I guess, you know, that never went away. I still really like to write, but now, you know, writing as an academic, it has evolved into this relationship between reading and writing mm-hmm. that I, I love to read and then I love to write about it. And then I love to read what, you know, it, it's this relationship between critical reading and trying to write in response to it. It's much more of a dialogue trying to respond to what another writer is doing. So it's a different sort of writing, but I still feel like it's just that love of sitting down and trying to express myself and articulate what I'm thinking mm. that that's always been with me. It's always been the thing that I felt like I needed to do. I had to get it out. I had to do it. So yeah, I've always been into writing. What inspired you to look at King's work through the political lens? Well, I had been writing. I mean, I've always been writing in my academic career uh, about politics and popular culture. And so I'm everything from my dissertation onward uh, had some kind of political edge to it. I I was Mm -hmm. trying to think about American popular culture and the complex politics of America and how they relate to each other. So taking things that most people don't pay attention to that most people ignore and trying to unpack, like, how does this impact our politics? Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a book about mass market fiction, where I looked at John Grisham, Dean Koontz, Danielle Steele, if you can believe it, I read everything that Danielle Steele ever wrote, which I think that should go on my tombstone. Like, Like, that woman is productive. (laughs) So, and a lot of it, not my cup of tea. For some people, you know, I mean, she's like the third best-selling author of all time. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was not always easy. But I said, I really want to think about how people read Danielle Steele. Like, what are they really getting from this? I don't want to disrespect or not pay attention to these readers because 
you know, this is what people actually read. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to know when they read it, what are some possible ways that they are thinking about their own politics? Like, what is the politics of Danielle Steele? Shouldn't we care about that since so many of our neighbors are reading Danielle Steele? We, we should know what the politics of these texts really are. And in writing that book, I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to do Stephen King. And it became clear to me that I could not just fit Stephen King into a chapter. (laughs) Like that chapter became sort of like my it, right? It became this (laughs) unwieldy behemoth. And I was like, you you can't, you can't do it. Like, it's just too big. There's too much to say. And he Mm -hmm. is too set apart in my mind. He's, he's not the same thing as Danielle Steele Mm -hmm. or Dean Koontz. To me, he's just kind of elevated. And I know that's just my own bias, but honestly, I think as a writer and as a figure, he's just a little bit set apart from this crowd. So he didn't really fit into that book. So I decided I had to do a whole book just with Stephen King. And when I did that, it was like coming home. It was sort of like what I had been wanting to do and waiting to do since college, since, you know, uh, since I was in class with Tony all those years ago. And so it all came full circle with that book and it all kind of clicked. And I realized, oh, I was supposed to be writing about Stephen King this whole time. And I, and I just was waiting for the, the moment had to be, appear uh, for me to write about him. So it all fell into place. And, and that's what led to this book. It is so clear from reading it, how much of a fan you are and how much you appreciate his work. As we've talked about on our podcast, we do look for some of that deeper meaning uh, not just the when you have those fun popcorn scenes, there's usually something lurking behind it. Uh, and, and you did such a great job because when we research some of this stuff, a lot of things you can find online are very, very general. This yeah. represents this. Mm-hmm. This stands in for this. You pulled some insanely specific examples that I was so happy because <laughs> I read this when we were covering it. So your whole chapter on it. All of that was fresh in my mind, and those examples awesome. were wonderful. So I just have to know, how much time did you spend rereading and researching all of these books that you covered? Too much. Too much. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, like, you can, and I'm really glad to hear that, and I'm flattered that, that you know, that that's what you, that that's what you took away from it. And I, what I want for you to anyone who's reading the book to feel is like the the well-worn pages of a Stephen King book in the background, because there's no question, like, I lovingly and very carefully worked my way through all of Stephen King's work, which that is also a considerable amount. But I, I really, I mean, I went back and I poured over these books multiple times trying to uncover their secrets trying to figure out how to do some, how to say something that wasn't like you said wasn't just here's a symbol of this other like, here's a very basic symbol he's using this as a symbol of this other thing isn't that interesting i just i didn't want to do the same thing i wanted to try to do something different with stephen king but that took time i mean it took a lot of rereading and a lot of thinking thinking some more and <laughs> second guessing myself and going back and reading again. I mean, it was it was a very exhaustive process, but it was also insanely fun. I mean, you can't also I can't, you know, understate the fact that I get to research 
Stephen King. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, like some people have to write about all kinds of boring subjects. I get to write about Stephen King, and I enjoy Stephen King. Like I'm a fan of Stephen King. So, getting to academically study Stephen King to me, it's mm-hmm. like, I mean what kind of dream am I living here that I get to do this? So yeah, I, I took a lot of time, but it wasn't painful. Of course it was (laughs) like, I get to spend hours of my day reading the shining and it, and all Mm -hmm. these other books, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate. Something that we've talked about a few times on our podcast that surprised me because we started this just for fun, just to be able to have a discussion with similarly minded people because everyone else is like, please shut up about horror and Stephen King, you weirdo. <laughs> and I, I was kind of delighted to discover that when you are reading for a specific purpose, you're reading far more critically and you catch so many things that on your first, second or third read, you didn't even consider. And on occasion, we've kind of had a little bit of pushback. And I think a lot of creators do. Sometimes people just don't want any politics in their art. I I think they, they just need a break from it. They want to hide from it. And I understand that. But I'm curious, since you have taken the time to write this, just such an an in-depth look at politics and King, what would you say to encourage people listening to, to think about King through that political lens? For sure. You know, and I think that resistance to reading King politically was one of the other motivators for me writing this book. Mm Honestly, I think that part of that comes from King himself, who in interviews has said, I'm not a political writer. Uh, I don't want to talk about politics. My books are not political. So if you take him at his word, he's not a political writer and his books have are trying to avoid politics. Uh, Insomnia is a good example of the book, you know, where he trying to avoid getting into the fray, trying trying to say, like, look at how people who are involved in politics just turn into monsters Mm -hmm. and better if we didn't have these political infights and partisan feuds and so forth. But the reality is, you know, Aristotle said a long time ago, man is a political animal. Mm -hmm. And the reality is you cannot avoid politics. And even the statement that I am not political is a political statement, right? (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's the truth. Like when if Stephen King says, I, I'm not being political in this book about abortion. I'm like, there's no way to not be political on this, right? Like your choice to not be political is a choice that is a political choice. Mm. So, you know, I think there is no way to engage with King that doesn't and I, his books are so deeply about politics, even in their avoidance of politics. Sometimes they're books that are about how America sometimes doesn't want to face up to certain political realities. I mean, he he's repressing the political monsters that we don't want to face, but they come out in his books even when he's repressing them, right? I mean, he's trying to hide them under our bed and they just keep popping back out. There's no getting away from them. And remember that King, and this is something Tony and I have written about, I mean, Remember that Stephen King was a a radical in college mm-hmm. who spoke out forcefully against the Vietnam War. I mean, everything he has written since then is in some way reflective of the volatile politics of the 60s in America. That's where he was when he became a writer. And it never went away. It's even mm-hmm. in his books that seem to not have much to say politically. If you look carefully, 
Uh, he is a reflection of American politics for better or worse. Even, even in his moments where he refuses to acknowledge that he's doing it, he is a reflection of our politics. Uh, he's the writer we love the most. I mean, he's the writer that is the standout writer of the last 50 years, the one who is the most remade into films, the one who is most talked about in the popular sense. So there's no way to get around it. I've wondered if his statements about that are more to allow people to have their own interpretation sure. politically, because it's just fascinating to think about our our learning histories, our environment, just the context of our lives probably shape how we interpret sort of which political ideas we get out of those books. So I, I don't know, what's your opinion of that? Do you think he's just trying to let people experience this through their own lens? Or do you think he really is trying to walk that line well, of not being political? You know, I think that it is, um, if you look at it kind of cynically, Something that I have noted about you know, these best-selling authors since the 70s is that they tend to try to avoid being overtly political, mostly for the, the purposes of selling books. I mean, the reality is Stephen King wants a big audience. And to get a big audience in America, you have to walk a moderate line. I mean, you have to appeal to conservative readers and liberal readers, even though I think Stephen King now in the Trump era has become a more outspoken progressive uh, at least ostensibly seems to be a, a liberal today more than he was maybe in the 80s or 90s. There's there's something about the way that he writes, like The Stand, that he has this very unique vision of a society without politics, but he recognizes the fact that societies cannot avoid getting political. I mean, that's sort of the message of The Stand, right, is that we will always gravitate back towards politics. Yeah. God and damn you, Glenn idea, Bateman. The idea that we can have a community like without politics is, I think King himself acknowledges in the book, there, there isn't, uh, unless you go out in the wilderness with you and one other person, right? Like, <laughs> that's why so many yeah. of his heroes are without are wanderers, no, mm. like nomadic people, like under the dome where the hero comes in and then, you know, he, he's just a loner. Yeah. Because for Stephen King, like, you can't be a hero and belong to a community because then you'd have to get political. <laughs> That's actually a perfect segue to one of the topics in your book that I really loved, which is about your Bachman protagonists yeah. because the Bachman protagonists are very isolated and, and are very um, fighting their own battles inside their society. And uh, I, I want to read a quote from the book. Uh, if I may, you wrote, Bachman's protagonists desire fulfillment within a system that will never pay out, a system in which they could never hope to win. I would love for you to dive a little deeper on that statement because it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that this is another sort of maybe hot take. I'm sort of, I've got a lot of weird takes on Stephen King. But <laughs> I sort of think Stephen King may have peaked in the 70s. Like, it may be that Stephen King is best in the context of the 1970s because his Bachman books are so fatalistic mm -hmm. and so grim. Uh, I, I sort of think Pet Cemetery should have been a Bachman. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Like, it's been. always been a book that stands out. Like, why did you write this with the King name? I guess, like, it was just too much of a big get for him. But, like, 
it's clearly a Bachman book. The, the fatalism is there. Like there is no winning. The, the game is rigged, right? It, it's a very kind of the era of Nixon and Watergate, the era of Vietnam, the era in which it was clear that um, that the game was rigged and that people didn't really have a chance to win. I mean, you you were going to be pulled up in the draft. If you tried to, you know, compete in the economy or win in the economy, stagflation and all that kind of stuff was going to weigh you down. There was just no winning in the in the late 70s in America, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think the Bachman books sort of reflect that pessimism and reflect maybe that sense that at least the economy, you mean capitalism in America, is a game that is not, you're kind of stuck. There, There is no winning here. But at the same time, I think the books are really fascinating because they open up the question of rehabilitation, the question of like, now that we have this fatalistic world, how do we go on? How do we continue to, in, in a world where we seem to be caught in these cycles of self-sabotage, where we seem to be undermining ourselves, there's something about like this, this loser mentality in the 70s. He's wondering, well, what is the future? Mm-hmm. And how can these people win in a, in a game where they can't win? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes them so fruitful to me and so interesting is those Bachman books are a moment where maybe we could imagine something different because we're at the bottom of the barrel. There's nothing else to do but radically reimagine our world, right? Like you get to all the end of Running Man, Long Walk. The only thing you can do is try to picture a different society. This is where I sort of feel like King is peaking in the 70s because, and with like the stand, I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's saying, okay, it couldn't get worse. So we've got to get ourselves out of this hole. We've got to rethink America. We've got to do it differently. And then Ronald Reagan comes around. There's a new America. The dawn is is dawning. In the 80s and 90s, King doesn't reimagine the world as much anymore. And that's when he starts a little less fatalism, a little more happy endings, a little more side, sort of self-reinvention talk and peppy individualism at times. And you start to think, what happened to Bachman? Where, where did he go? And I, I think a lot of readers would not agree with me that, that Bachman is like peak Stephen King, but I do sort of feel that way. I feel yeah. like, you know, it was the most interesting when he was the most fatalistic. Yeah. Well, I, what I find it interesting is it made me realize I'd been telling people, uh, you know, when you recommend a Stephen King book to people who aren't Stephen King readers, you try to find a comparison that they do like. And I often told people that the long walk was if Stephen King wrote The Hunger Games. Yeah. But in reality, it's as though Stephen King wrote like The Hunger Games is several books down the line where things are about to get better, where he just stops when it's the worst. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, those, those books and, you know, road work as well. I mean, those books are bummers for sure. Yeah. Pet Cemetery, I absolutely adore Pet Cemetery, but what a bummer. I mean, what a downer of a book, but those are the books where it's the most kind of, I don't know, provocative. I mean, you can't help but read at the end of The Long Walk, like The Hunger Games is a great analogy. I mean, you can't help but read at the end and think, boy, we have to start from scratch. We've mm-hmm. got to come up with a different way of doing business around here. Uh, and that's where King was at his most radical. He was reflective of that 60s urge to change things. And I sort of wish 
he he comes back to it from time to time, but I sort of wish he had held on to that a little bit more in some of his work because that real drive, that like anger that is there in the Bachman books and that drive to change the world uh, makes some of that early King just so fascinating. And as he goes on, there's more kind of acceptance of the status quo or the books become more reflective of the status quo. I still love the later Stephen King, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't have that anger. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe, it's a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah. He got a lot of money and a lot of money helps with anger, I guess. Like he has, he's maybe the reflection of the boomer generation, right? Like there's a sort of, you can read later Stephen King and be like, okay, boomer. But you know, the early King was, was living that sixties life and really pushing back against the system. Uh, and it just makes for really good reading. We covered a few Bachman books on our episodes and they're so mean and fun. And the, I think the one that I always felt like could sort of walk the line, obviously, was the dark half. Because you sort of have those two, those like mirrored Stephen King and Bachman Mm. images, which is really cool. So in your book, is there a particular chapter or part that you are, that is your favorite or you're just especially proud of? I really feel very strongly about the it chapter that kind of goes into the debate between individualism and communitarianism or the the debates between in the 80s especially between this vision of America that is based on traditionally classical liberalism like the idea of individuals pitted against each other and private property and all of those things versus this vision of America as a community as you know we are indebted to each other and to the communities to which we belong like and that to me is so quintessentially what it is about and so i tried to take the political and you know political theory battles that were going on in the 80s and apply them to it and think about well how is it that this novel is reflective of that tension that tension between uh, a desire to feel like we are indebted to each other in a serious way. And I mean, that, that's a book about a family of kids that feels bound together at the deepest level, right? I mean, that, that feels that their lives have been entwined with each other and that they owe each other their lives. And there is no individualism in the gang, in the club, right? The Losers Club is about unity, about oneness, But at the same time, they have to face that clown alone. Mm -hmm. And the book is about what happens when communities get too close and lose track of individualism, lose track of like autonomy. So each of the kids has to face their own demons, but also have to sort of face like Derry is a a disgusting little (laughs) place because of that sort of, you know, communal essence that that makes them bound together in the ugliest possible way that there's this nationalism or this sort of identity to dairy that is exclusionary right that that is uh, the mirror image like a community also has to leave people out and communities can get pretty nasty i mean they can get to be bullies they can get to be there's looking through the mirror darkly of the losers club is bowers and his friends like you have the bully club that is hideous. Mm-hmm. So it's this reflection in in it between good community and bad community that I think speaks to America 
at a, at a really foundational place. Like, are, are we going to be a good community or a bad community? Maybe we have to be both. And maybe that's, I think that's the complexity of it in the conclusion is somehow we have to be both things. Mm-hmm. And it's an impossible task, but that's the task that's set out before us. Yeah, reading that chapter while covering it was definitely a really encompassing, uh, took a lot of space in my brain to I process it. Like I'm, so, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear because that was definitely probably the chapter that was to me the biggest labor of love. Uh, you know, because you already know, I mean, my history with it is mm-hmm. the longest history I have with King, but I just felt like this is my chance to to talk about it. And this is why I think it matters so much. And maybe I can sway a few people to, to kind of appreciate it. I feel like maybe it's one of his best works that is underrated, if that's possible. It's the book that most people sort of laugh off or disregard because it's it's just doesn't have the staying power in a lot of people's minds as like The Shining or The Stand or the Dark Tower series mm-hmm. even. Like it just doesn't stick in a way, but I, I sort of push against that and say, I think it is maybe his masterpiece. How did you feel revisiting Derry in 112263? That was interesting. You know, I, I think when he goes back and he sort of, it's this meta moment, right? Where he's like re-choreographing that encounter. Uh, I felt like it was a really interesting time for King, or really interesting way for King to think about himself as a writer, his own development, right? There's something very autobiographical about the moments where he's looking back and trying to relive that. I mean, I think that's sort of the point of that whole book is you can't recapture the magic of that yeah. original moment, right? And that maybe tells us a lot about where it is in his own mind. I mean, a lot of that book is, could that was my most magical, spontaneous moment, but I can't go back and do it again, right? There's That's very poignant where he, he sort of leaves and they're still in motion and he's mm-hmm. leaving. And he's sort of like, I can't stay here, right? I can't mm-hmm. stay in Derry forever. That is, uh, that's good. I, I like that quite a bit. Yeah, I've read that book three times and people don't like it. And I, I wish they would give it more of a chance because it's just a really interesting way to come back to Derry. And I think I noticed a lot more about dairy itself in that then I even noticed in it and it could have had something to do with I was older when I read 112263 too it's also in my mind the book that is most about writing other than on writing of course mm-hmm. but I feel like that's a book about the creative process that's king working through what it is to write and the, and the challenge of trying to write and being stuck and how you, you have to somehow like find a way to say something new, even though you're just digging up the old stuff, you're, you're playing all the classics. Like it, 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 to me, that's what that book is really about. It's about King thinking through what is writing and, and how am I a writer and, and how did I used to be a writer and what am I doing now? Like there's something really autobiographical. That's why I also, I, I also share with you a love for that book. I think it, it deserves more attention than it gets. It's interesting too. I mean, it makes me think of a comment you had earlier about, you know, we need to re-envision this and do better. But I feel like instead we just repeat the history that we should have learned doesn't work. And that yeah. book it's just like, oh, 
<laughs> Will it yeah. ever yeah. be different and good? Now, no matter there is, how hard there's we another fight? way to look at that book too that is interesting, right? Like I like to try to like take the book apart from various angles, even though I love it. To also, try to say like, what are some of the ways to look at it critically? And I think there, there's one thing in the book that kind of is re- maybe representative of King's politics more generally. Is there's sort of a an anti-activist streak in 112263 a sort of like don't be political a, a sort of don't try to make a difference like mm-hmm. just let the world happen mm-hmm. that's sort of the message of the book which is you know when you're thinking about the creative process of writing it makes some sense to me but if you dig down and you're kind of thinking wait a minute i'm not supposed to try to change the world anymore like we've come a long way from the bachman books like <laughs> now me changing the world might set off a nuclear holocaust so it'd be better if i just sit back and don't vote as we established <laughs> earlier we need to vote right. like, I think there's a certain kind of like he doesn't like people who plan too much or who try to be mm-hmm. activists or who try to change the way things work. And I don't know, on some issues, that's problematic, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you took that too literally and you said, I guess I shouldn't march in the streets against, you know, any number of different hot button issues mm-hmm. and I don't have my convictions and I just sort of like lean back and let the world happen. Okay. For me, as like, you know, a white male person of privilege, like that's cool for me not cool Mm -hmm. for a lot of other people, right? So that, I guess, if there's anything that I would want to push back on King in that book, it would be the implication that we shouldn't try to change the world. And I would say, I'm more of a Bachman guy. (laughs) I like, I think the world needs some changing sometimes. And I think people should, when they need to change it, I think they should stand up and try to change it. It's interesting because it's, again, I think it's that context. I'm I'm a licensed social worker, so you yeah. probably imagine exactly what my political leanings and how I feel about things are. And I almost feel like reading 1122-63, it's just so, it walks right up to that line of hope and then it just crushes you. And yeah. I almost feel like in a way that's him challenging us not to accept that and to think deeper. But it's it's kind of alarming because if you are just absorbing this book as just something fun to read, I think you miss the complexity of that. So I definitely yeah. see why people would get the message that, oh, yeah, it's it's not worth trying to change things because it never works out. But when in reality, it's exact opposite of that. And again, maybe my background just influences how I interpret it in a weird way. Well, I mean, and, and you as a fellow lover of King, I mean, my wife is also a clinical social worker. And, and you know, that there is like... I also feel like people who love King kind of have aspirations for King and know what King is capable of. And we know that Stephen King doesn't want the world to go to shit. And we know that's not how Stephen King really operates. But I do think there is a thing in his in his more in his later works where you could read it that way. I mean, you could read this like with Insomnia, too, is another book where it's sort of like you, it's hard not to walk away from the book and say, he's telling us, like, don't march about the things you care about like that the answers come from like magic and waiting for magic and not (laughs) from getting involved Mm -hmm. and so you know i think that's king wrestling right like i don't think that's what king honestly believes but i think that's him sort of wrestling like like he is a reflective of that boomer generation i mean reflecting with his own activist roots Mm -hmm. and his later like i'm very wealthy 
and sort of taking a more moderate tack to attract more readers later self. And in any book, you can see both of those things at play. Yeah. Like he, he, like any interesting writer has many faces, right? Mm-hmm. On that note of the, the sort of uh, should I or shouldn't I call to action, uh, I, I want to talk about the, the chapter title when uh, when you reached out, I looked at the table of contents for the book and I saw the chapter that I was like, I've got to read this book. And it was the chapter, The Outsider and the Shifting Shapes of Trumpism. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, I have to know what this is because I fucking loved The Outsider. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and as you're talking about kind of this uh, sit back and let it happen or the call to action, you talked about you brought up a really good point about the arraignment scene, which spoilers for The Outsider, if you haven't read it, uh, it ends in in bloody hell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you attributed that to the be reflective of of social media in a yeah. way. And I was wondering if you could kind of uh, discuss that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think The Outsider is a is a super interesting, maybe one of his more interesting books in the last 10 or 15 years. And I think the, the reason being that the book is reflective of two strains. And I think those strains became really pronounced in the 2016 election, right? Between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And have only gotten more intense since then. And the, the two strains would be this liberal America, liberal in the sense of, you know, uh, officious, let's have a committee meeting about it, like kind of the elites getting together and the, the, the people are getting mad about the, the slowness of elites and bureaucrats, right? And Hillary Clinton, I guess, in the 2016 election came to embody the bureaucratic sensibility in America or the sense that like, she's going to have a bunch of committee work for people to do. And on the other side, you have the populists. And you have the populist who is like totally a shapeshifter, will say anything to get a applause, is sort of morphing into whatever the audience needs him to be. And it's those two American propulsion at that particular moment uh, that makes The Outsider so interesting. Because the first part of the book almost seems like it's going to be a detective So it's going to be a straightforward detective tale. You're going to have, like, using the process of reason and deduction, you're going to get to the bottom of the mystery. And then the second half goes into a completely bonkers story about shape-shifting monsters. (laughs) And, like, the person who in the beginning is saying kooky things about supernaturalism and vampires and stuff Mm -hmm. becomes sort of the hero of the book. And suddenly she's way more trustworthy than the guy who seems much more level-headed. And at the end of the book, I think you're left with those two competing sides sort of at odds with each other. And there isn't a great resolution. There isn't a, like, there's this, like, belief, like, you should believe in the shapeshift. You should believe in the supernatural. You should believe in the outlandish. And then there's this appeal to, like, the cooler heads, right? We should all calm down and be reasonable. And America is a Janus face right now. It's like the screaming maniac and the person who is level-headed pretending nothing bad is happening. And that's what that book is. Like it's this frenetic combination mm-hmm. of like hyper-rationality and mania. And the whole thing devolves into like a generic mashup. Like, what is this thing? And I'm like, this I can dig. I can dig. <laughs> A book where I'm like, I don't know even how to classify this thing. Like, what is this book? That was my jam. 
for sure. I, I remember when we read that on our podcast, it was the first time we'd read it. And I don't often get to read on our podcast for the first time because we we've been exposed to so much Stephen King. And it, it was a beautiful moment when you were surprised by that, which reminds me of Rose Matter. Because yeah. uh, so I read that when I was in seventh grade. Ouch. It is a, <laughs> a brutal book. I, yeah. I didn't even comprehend some of those moments in it. And of course, I luckily it's a book, so I got to reread it as an adult. But when when it makes that switch, kind of like The Outsider, like that boom, surprise, this is a different book. For me, yeah. since it was my first King experience, I was flabbergasted in a really good way. I was like, oh my God, books can do this? For sure. I mean, what an interesting book Rose Matter is. I mean, and I think it's part of a really interesting part of King's trajectory, right? I mean, it's part of that time where he was trying to write women and he had decided that he hadn't done a good job. And so he really went like headfirst into the, I'm going to correct this, right? And if you have to give it to him that Stephen King I will acknowledge his blind spots mm -hmm. and try to correct them. And I know some people are down on King about that, but it's like, I appreciate the fact that Stephen King recognizes when he's not doing something well yeah. and tries to make up for it and tries to do a better job. Sort of why Duma Key is interesting to me. I think it's a book where he is sort of wrestling with the fact that he has uh, not done a great job with race. And there's a lot of critics out there who were coming at him and saying, why are you so bad on race? Like, what, what is your problem? Why can't you get better at this? And it's sort of a book about a writer who has to wrestle with memories that are not his own, that belong to a person who suffered, a, tra a traumatized Black woman. Mm -hmm. And he's a white writer who has to kind of figure out what to do with memories that don't belong to him. And I feel like that's a really interesting commentary on King trying to, to right some of his wrongs. Mm -hmm. For like He's not perfect. He's never going to do it to everybody's satisfaction. But Rose Matter is a great example of a book where I think King is trying to deal with um, feminism, with his own relationship to feminism, with his relationship to female empowerment. Mm -hmm. And even though I don't think the book ultimately... I think there are still issues with the book politically that are worth kind of hashing out. Uh, I think ultimately you have to give him credit for trying, mm -hmm. for taking a swing at it and saying, I'm not, I don't think I've done well enough and I'm going to try to do a different, that's part of what we talked about, right? That's him reinventing things. That's him trying to change the world in his own way. Mm -hmm. Well, Rosebetter is one of, uh, one of our favorites on the show. And it is funny how, like how it winds up, on people's lists in very varying places. Sure. And and the chapter in your book about it is titled Human Capital and Rose Matter. Yeah. And as I was going through the table of contents reading those, I, I I saw that title and I thought, man, that is that is a stretch. I'm really yeah. interested to see. And you shocked me with some of the points you made in there. I, I want to know uh, how you came to this conclusion within Rose Matter as human capital. Yeah, I think, you know, like, again, I, I think, as I say to students in the class, you know, because 
sometimes I'll take this critical approach to a King text and they'll be like, I thought you were a fan of Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) And listen, I am a fan of Stephen King. The fact that Stephen King gets us to have these discussions is the beauty of Stephen King, right? Like we don't need to have a discussion where we agree with Stephen King. Like the interesting thing about his texts is that they are so rich Mm -hmm. and they invite critical commentary. They let us hash these things out. Like not every writer gives us that gift. So uh, for Rose Matter, you know, I, I feel like it's a book where two things stood out to me. One, the ATM, the uh, the ATM, and the the idea of the like the transaction between her and her abusive husband via this imaginary ATM, and that imagery is so persistent throughout the book that I thought it's interesting that he chose an ATM to think about her body as a kind of ATM mm-hmm. was really an interesting metaphor to me. And I thought one that deserved to be, you know, fleshed out a little bit. And the other thing that stood out to me was this idea of the art of being who you are, the, the idea of turning yourself into a work of art and the self aesthetics, the idea that we can style our own existence, that we can become like paintings that can sort of create ourselves artistically Like that was a really interesting theme to me because on both fronts, I think they're reflective of a certain 1990s mentality. Uh, uh, The rise of kind of identity politics, the transactions of identity, the way in which we start to think about our identities as being more fluid in a lot of different ways. I, I thought the ATM was sort of an interesting way to think about the way in which our identities have become sort of commodified. And the ways in which we sort of trade in our identities that we sort of buy and sell our identities online now. We have this marketplace of identity. I thought that was really an interesting thing. And I thought, even though the book tries to be emancipatory, tries to be sort of saying, this is a woman who finds herself and becomes more powerful. And to some extent, that's ultimately the message of the book. There's also this other piece, this kind of at what cost? And I think the book itself is sort of posing the question, like, what is the cost to her for her freedom? To be free, she has to pass it on. Mm -hmm. She has to transmit it. It becomes that AIDS metaphor. She has to sort of give it to other people in order to be free of it. Coming back to that indebtedness question. And And I started to think maybe this is a book that is about how our bodies have become these sources of capital, these fluid sources of transactional interactions with each other. Um, And so maybe the book is either super liberating towards women to trying to say, like, you need to be free of this man. But maybe it's also a book that sort of cashes in, to extend the metaphor, on the idea of um, bodies for sale. And I don't know if the book is resisting that idea or confirming it. Well, it, 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 it could come down either way. The the fact that the the point you brought up that if finding her place in society alone happens via her essentially selling her voice yeah. to create more art that passing on that you're talking about. Uh yeah. and that really got me and then yeah the Norman is already a horrifying villain but yes. when you add all of that ATM stuff in there. And then you think about all the times that he grumbles about the bank card and 
Now that that connection's in my head, I'm horrified the next time I read this book at how much more grossed out I'm going to be. So thank you it for that. It is really gross. It's really, really gross. I completely agree with you. Uh, it is a disturbing, disturbing book. Thinking about, too, as you were talking, the seeds and what she has to do at the end of the yeah. book and the inner turmoil and what that is doing to her life and relationships until she plants those is yeah. fascinating. It, it is. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, especially in the context of the nineties where, I mean, the anxiety about AIDS was so high. And I think the metaphor of that kind of the disease, and I guess maybe we could come back to it in the time of COVID-19 and have an interesting way of looking at rose matter and the transmission, the idea of bodies transmitting things and how we sort of unconsciously like the rabies that shows up at the end, right? Like these diseased bodies unconsciously poisoning everybody else. There's something really, really grim mm -hmm. about that. And, uh, you know, and again, I'm not sure if the book is being critical of that kind of selfhood model of the nineties or, or sort of upholding it. But at the end of the day, it is reflective of the nineties. It's one of those books that if I wanted someone to understand the anxieties of the nineties, I'd say, look at Rose Matter. Like, Rose Matter <laughs> everything that was scary about living in the nineties is there like ATMs, uh, the internet, uh, AIDS, it's everything mm -hmm. is in the nineties and, and, and is there. So I, I feel like you've kind of answered this question in several of your comments, but just to sort of pull it together for our listeners, what is it that you would really like people to take away from your book? I think, you know, the, the, in reading the book, I would hope people, readers would, would walk away understanding that Stephen King is us and we are Stephen King and, and Stephen King's trajectory, his political evolution, his steps forward and let's admit it, steps backwards, his inner demons, his the things that he can't quite come to terms with in a way that satisfies us and the things that he just immediately says that resonate at the, at the deepest level. Like Stephen King's politics are our own, for better or worse. And if it's messy, if it's confusing, that's because we are messy and we are confusing. Like he, <laughs> he is a perfect distillation of our mm -hmm. uh, of our anxieties, our fears, and our hopes. And so, if you can read Stephen King, I think you will understand where America has been since the 1970s, and maybe, hopefully, a glimmer of of where we go next too. Mm -hmm. What has the response been? so far to this book? It's been really positive. You know, I mean, I think the the Stephen King academic sort of community is really tight knit. And so I've heard from a lot of folks who have really positive things to say, and that's always really nice. It was surprising, gratifying, humbling when I, you know, when I go to a conference, uh, you know, a popular culture studies kind of conference and go to a panel and the person presenting is, you know, quoting from my book or or using my point, even if they're disagreeing with me, mm -hmm. I'm sort of like, wow, they read the book and, and they, <laughs> yeah. they want to talk about it. So, you know, that's been really, really encouraging. And uh, yeah, it is, as you might imagine, like group of people who study things getting together, like the people who study Stephen King, these are, these are my people. Yeah. These are my people. Yeah. So they've got my back anyway. <laughs> So what do you find interesting right now? What what's next for you? Well, I you know, I am 
in still in the world of Stephen King, um, maybe not surprisingly, but uh, I'm actually I have a fellowship for this summer. I'm going to go up uh, to the University of Vermont, and Tony and I are going to continue working on a project we've been working on uh, about Stephen King's detectives uh, in, in a project that we're working on, where we look at the detectives that Stephen King has been focused on since the beginning of his career and why of late he seems to be turning more and more to that genre, to the uh, his dependence on film noir, his reliance upon like suspense novels and mysteries. There's that whole kind of unplumbed part of Stephen King's canon because uh, we tend to think about him as a horror or fantasy writer but he is really, really interested in detectives. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're trying to have the, the first really in-depth study of Stephen King's detectives. Um, and that's, that's coming soon. So we're, we're going to be working on that a little bit more this summer. That sounds amazing. Are you going to hold off until the Holly Gibney book comes out? That almost definitely is going to be, in, I don't think there's yeah. any way we could finish the book. <laughs> like, once you get going on this kind of thing, like it, it's one of those projects where once you start digging a little bit and you start realizing, oh my goodness, there's a lot here. <laughs> uh, we're doing Mr. Mercedes this summer. We're going to really be working on that trilogy a lot more in depth uh, and kind of hammering out some, some stuff about that. But that the book on Holly is going to be, I'm very much excited to see what he does with that, uh, as you might imagine. Oh, yeah. I think a lot. I think a lot of us who read Stephen King are, are interested. When I read that he would, he was coming out with that book. I my immediate, I immediately just <laughs> the, the fanboy <laughs> in me came out, and I was just ecstatic to hear this news. So I, I'm excited to read it. Where can we look for that? How do we um, keep up to date with you and follow you? Um, well, you know that that. The actual, that project won't come out for a little while. We're still, you know, working on it, but um, you can follow along. I'm on Twitter, Michael J. Bluin 5, and that's B-L-O-U-I-N 5. So on Twitter, I tend to, that's where I tend to kind of post any new projects. Uh, I have a a few things, something on uh, John Carpenter that I've been working on for a while. (laughs) That is uh, that's coming out that soon, so I'll be posting about yeah. that. But Sorry, I yeah, gotta go. To be, you know, <laughs> what was that? I said I gotta go. I just gotta look at that right now. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, well that's it's not posted yet, but it is going to be posted very soon. I've been very much in the weeds with uh, with John Carpenter yeah, lately, so nice. that's coming soon. All right, uh, I think that covers everything, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I have I've loved it. It is so great to actually be on here talking to you. I've enjoyed the podcast for quite a while. So uh, keep up what you're doing. I think I think you you all are doing incredible work yourselves with Stephen King. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode for CM Alexander and Michael Bluen. I'm Joshua Khan reminding you Stephen King is us. We are Stephen King. That's it for this episode of On Reading. As always, thank you for listening. Until our next break room chat, I'm CM Alexander, reminding you to stay on reading.